Hey guys and girls, and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Marcel Velterop, who is CEO and member of the board at Primopus. So, who is Marcel? Well, Marcel is a gentleman that I've had the fortune of meeting across uh, a few events over the, the last few years and gotten to know him uh, a, a little bit better. And I was really pleased that he agreed to come on the podcast after we bumped into each other at DCAT a few months ago. Um, Marcel himself uh, holds a master's degree in chemical engineering from uh, Delft University of Technology started his career at DSM, where he spent 14 years in various roles of growing responsibility. He then joined Dr. Reddy's uh, CPS, uh, CDMO, and subsequently worked for large Indian providers like Sci Life Sciences and Jubilant. He gained extensive international experience during his four years in the US and now has over 15 years in Switzerland and aims to work with cultural differences globally and build productive collaborations. He found purpose in the pharma industry and helping drive innovation as a service provider in the CDMO and CRO industries. During COVID, an opportunity presented itself to work for a large Indian CMO um, who had acquired a GMP API plant just outside Basel in Switzerland. And as CEO at Primopus, he is building a hybrid business model with complex RSMs and intermediate supplied out of the Swiss site with full backward integration from the large capacity available in India at its parent company. Very impressive stuff. Um, and what you'll hear today is not only his impressive experience and views on the sector, but what an interesting guy he is just generally uh, bubbling uh, with personality as well. So when you're uh, you know tuning in for the episode today, for anyone that is uh, from a technical background and looking to transition and navigate their way into a more commercial career path, uh, Marcel gives some great advice uh, for people who want to do that and some things that work for him in his journey. Uh, we get into quite a lot of detail around the CDMO business model and and you know pretty uh, brutal view from Marcel on why it's such a difficult business and why execution and results are everything. Um, given his experience of working four Indian companies uh, and in, uh, primarily in the Asia market, uh, you know, albeit from his base in Switzerland over the last 15 years or so. Um, he gives some great insights into working with companies in India and doing business there, as well as some other kind of interesting insights around uh, the Asian market generally. Um, Oli, Go and Nucleotides have come up again and again in the podcast over the last six months. So I took this opportunity to ask my guest, Marcel, a little bit more about uh, Oli Go's, which uh, continues to grow in demand. Uh, and he um, gives a great kind of overview of the backstory of the this interesting new platform technology, but also how it's kind of gone from a niche, uh, almost to orphan drug status into uh, kind of the mainstream and why it presents a great tool if you like for the healthcare uh you know i suppose toolbox for drug developers going forward really really interesting kind of take on that and how they are likely to be uh, kind of key in drug development going forward 
So as always, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thanks to my team for pulling everything together. Um, If you're at bio or any other events uh, in the kind of fall time, let me know. Um, It'll be great to meet in person. I'll be out and about in September and October as well at the back end of the summer. Um, If you haven't already, please give us a kind rating on your kind of platform that you're listening to this podcast and share today's episode with a colleague so we can get Molecule to Market into more ears, if that's the right phrase. Enjoy today's show. Marcel, welcome to the show. Ramon, thank you very much. Great to be here. Look forward to have a chat with you. Yeah, likewise. I know we met probably a couple of years ago now and obviously bumped into each other at a couple of events since. So I'm really pleased we've managed to get you on the podcast to tell your story to our listeners today. So Marcel, let's start with your background. Give our listener a bit of a, a some of the backstory about you and your journey uh, and ultimately how you got to where you are today in your current role. All right. That's a, a short question with a potentially a dramatically long answer. Well, I have been in business uh, over 33 years now. So obviously I started uh, very early right after kindergarten. I'm not going to give away my age yet. Um, I'm a I thought you were I thought you were less. I thought you were 21, so that's a shock to me. So. Liar. <laughs> um, so I uh, graduated as a chemical engineer in Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, um, Dutch national. I then joined uh, DSM and the first day on the job, uh, DSM hired me for my technical uh, skills, but clearly uh, commercial affinity, which they trained uh, by giving an in-house MBA. And that kind of set the stage for the rest of my career. It is uh, applying a, a business sense uh, within a technical, highly technical environment uh, like chemical and pharmaceutical supplies. Um, and within DSM, uh, who I credit for a lot of my uh, uh, success in later years, I had uh, five different roles in that period of 14 years in three different business units um, in two different geographic locations, uh, almost three, two in the Netherlands, and, and I spent four years in the US. Um, and that kind of exposed me to uh, the world uh, in different industries, learned uh, a lot of skills on the way. Uh, in my last role, DSM acquired uh, a large penicillin manufacturer called Gisbrocatus, which became DSM Anti-Infectives. I was there for f- almost five years in two different roles. Um, first as the global product manager for the penicillin and amoxicillin franchise. Um, and then second part of my career at, the, at DSM Anti-Infectives was strategy manager, st- strategy implementation manager. Um, and... The gist of it is that is what got me truly into pharmaceuticals. Um, the, the group, I was responsible for product management of 11 global sites, which each had their site heads. And I believe you had one of them on your podcast, Derek Henneke. That's how I ran into Derek at the time. Um, and it exposed me to global uh, emergence of Asia. So the strategy I wrote for DSM in uh, two sentences is essentially... Uh, Antibiotics are where the patients are. The majority of people in the world and the planet live in Asia, so you have to become more Asian. And that's also where the competition came from. So I saw firsthand the emergence of a powerhouse of China and then uh, thereafter India. Um, So when I wrote that strategy, uh, the previous business head of DSM India left DSM and joined Dr. Reddy's. 
and somehow I was approached by Dr. Reddys to join them uh, late 2003 um, as the uh, European head for custom pharma services. Now, back in the day, it was not very customary to join an, uh, an Indian company. Um, pretty much everybody in my environment called me crazy. I had become quite comfortable in India. Um, during my travels, I was in India quite often. Uh, we did a lot of uh, strategy uh, reviews. We, we, we discussed the penicillin market and the dynamics. It's a very dynamic, uh, competitive uh, area. Um, and uh, so I was, I was comfortable. So I made the jump and probably one of the best career decisions I've made. Um, it, is a, it was an incredible journey. India is full of extremely uh, nice people. Um, very strong local culture, uh, which works in India and not everywhere else in the world. But also a segue into some of the lessons I've learned is how important uh, cultural awareness and understanding is uh, if you are planning to be to engage in the global arena, which I guess the CDMO business is. Um, and I have lots of stories, uh, anecdotes about um, where people make that effort and where people don't. Um, they throw things over the fence and say, oh, great, I can get uh, half the costs. Um, and they expect the same service as in uh, certain Western countries. Um, and that doesn't work in reality. So after six, seven years at Dr. Reddy's, um, which, of course, is known for its large generic business, it was increasingly clear that that business model was uh, competing. So I joined a very focused uh, unknown company called Sci Life Sciences. Um, and helped grow them um, into probably one of the top uh, CDMOs that are in India now. Um, that was a, a journey. I, I made it to chief commercial officer there. Uh, it was a, a global role with uh, sales representation in, in Japan, the US, across Europe. Uh, lots of interaction with India. Um, we did um, amazing things together. Um, and then I had the opportunity to run a business in a PL and Jubilant Biosys, which is a drug discovery company, uh, and also to learn more about the early phase of the CDMO business where the, the drug candidates actually get discovered and they reach uh, IND stage. Um, very scientifically challenging um, for a simple chemical engineer like myself. Um, not always easy, but um, I quickly found out that it is not about knowing the science uh, on a very deep level if your company is full of PhDs. It's about understanding the process to bring that science into uh, a discovery services and finally a compound that can enter the clinic. And there I've been able to make lots of contributions. And um, for the past 20 years, I've been a very passionate CDMO, CRO um, manager, leader, business leader, I call myself, um, working with people, connecting them globally, uh, addressing uh, misunderstandings and, and misperceptions and delivering value. And that finally brought me uh, to the current role, uh, which happened during the pandemic. Uh, travel to India was no longer possible, so I was kind of stuck behind a, a small laptop trying to manage 900 people from afar. And that didn't feel right. So there was a company, again, an Indian company who acquired uh, an empty API plant from Novartis uh, just outside Basel, where I live. Um, and with the remit uh, to restart it and start a CDMO business with a, with a novel business model. And that's currently what I've been doing for the past uh, year and a half, almost two years now. Well, take a pause there because I want to chat about your current role, but I'll 
I want to rewind back to a few things that you mentioned, uh, Marcelo, just to to get your view on a, on a couple of things. You you were bought you were you said you were a Dutch national, but you've obviously spent a big chunk of your life in Switzerland in, in Basel, from what I could gather. What what was the what was the catalyst to move to Switzerland? Was that during one of those roles, or was that a personal decision to move? So the reason I ended up in Switzerland is Dr. Eddy's. They acquired a large business from Hoffman La Roche, including a manufacturing site in Mexico. And that business was managed out of a, an office in Basel. I was then based in the Netherlands, so we made the decision to move to Basel. Um, and uh, I ended up managing that uh, contract with, uh, with Roche. Uh, excellent company to work with, um, as an aside. Um, it, it expanded us into Mexico, of course and trying to convert um, a former in-house big pharma site into becoming a CDMO site for essentially multi-customer, multi-geography supply and and development. So that's the reason why I ended up in Basel. And obviously, I then discovered uh, Basel is kind of a unique pharma hub in the world. It's a remarkably small city of around 200,000 inhabitants. It is extremely well organized, and it uh, is home to uh, two of the top five pharma companies. I'm actually looking at the plant of one of them right now. Um, And in addition, there's a whole host of biotech, smaller companies. Um, You have J&J who acquired Octalion. So uh, it it made sense to stick around when uh, I finally decided after seven years to leave Dr. Eddy's because it was an ideal hub. I've got one flight to India, one flight to the US. um, And you've got from Basel in a one, two hour flight, you cover most of the European geography. So for um, my commercial roles, this was actually quite convenient. Um, and at the end of the day, you cannot uproot the family every few years if you have a job change. So that was another reason to just stick around. And subsequent employers like Sai and also Jubilant, they were willing to accommodate that. I wish my family would have me follow that rule of not uprooting them every few years. But I seem to be breaking that rule every few years and, and sending them up to different places in the world. But... You know, to your point on Basel, I mean, I had the opportunity of, of visiting the, the Swiss Biotech event last year, and I didn't manage to get to this year. And it is an absolutely incredible place for many of the reasons that you said there, and great energy surrounding that place. Some huge companies that are based in and around that part of the world. And something you said right at the start, which has been, from what I can see, Marcel, a real pattern in your career is you know, this ability to apply business, albeit with a technical background. I can't remember the specific phrase that you use, but it definitely seems to be a skill that you've honed over the years to kind of use your commercial acumen to help kind of apply it to a a technical or highly complex uh, kind of discussion where it would be around APIs or excipients or something like formulation development. So if, you know, if, you know, if a young uh, person who has relatively early on into their career, you know, say say they've gone from a technical role into a more commercial role, which is a really common pathway that I've seen from people going from the laboratory or the operations floor, uh, you know, into the office environment. Any tips or, or suggestions on that, you know, that have worked for you to help kind of manage? I appreciate it was a long time ago, but you've obviously refined that skill over the, over time. And I suspect there's some skills you can, you can impart. I think the key is to learn a few of the theoretical concepts that can be, uh, I would not recommend a full-time MBA necessarily, but certainly a part-time or executive MBA or even a partial one. I did some additional marketing training on my own. I had training on logistics management, supply chain. 
which has served me throughout my career incredibly well. So I think the comfort you need to have is that when you've developed a certain skill, uh, and chemical engineering degree is a relatively broad uh, degree, so I know a little bit about a lot of things, but not a lot about a single topic, if you will. And if you apply that, the skill you learn is process thinking. And uh, the CDMO business model is very much about managing and, and aligning and orchestrating almost the individual organizational functions into a, a process that delivers value to a customer. And that is the core of what a CDMO does. You can make it very strategic, but ultimately you shouldn't spend more than 10, 20% of your time because it's 80%, 90% execution. And if you execute well or better than uh, most, you stand out and customers will flock to you almost. And you also need to realize you're only as good as your last deal. The other thing I would say is this business is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, with one of the CEOs I served in, in the past, we used to joke, you need to be an absolute madman to volunteer to be in the CDMO industry. <laughs> the reason we said that is uh, you're, you're under the microscope. It is completely transparent. Your, your batch records, your detail, your, your, all your flaws and faults and errors and omissions are, are on the table uh, to be scrutinized by a customer in whatever geography. And, and you hope that they spare you a little bit to, uh, uh, to let you be there the next week as well. And it is uh, hard work. You should not shy away from direct blunt feedback because if you don't deliver, you will get it uh, in a frontal feedback um, why this is not working. And I've gotten quite a few of those conversations on behalf of the companies I represented. Is, is how do you filter that down to constructive guidance that the weaker functions and the ability of a project management function to tie these things together and repair it in a way that is not a band-aid, but a structural root cause. And root cause analysis is another important skill if you're in the CDMO business, because you need to understand why things happened and that you built a a solution that is robust and that makes sure that this deviation doesn't happen again. There'll be another one, but not this one. I found that the farm industry is remarkably accepting of kind of fault or deviations, provided you are transparent and honest about them and you come back with, with, an, with an impressive and in-depth um, root cause analysis. Uh, some fantastic tips there, Marcel, that you know, I'm sure our listener will Young Arnold will take away in some kind of real great observations on the reality of being in the CDMO space. It's like you've touched a few times on obviously the cultural piece in India. And, you know, certainly when I was looking at your background, I think the bulk of your career, if not all of your career, has been spent uh, with Indian owned companies. So I suppose my quite obviously we'll get into things that you've learned along the way. And also, you know, come back to the point you made previously about, I suppose, the emergence of Asia and, and how that will evolve going forward. But as I, if, as I look at it from, if I you know, run an Indian-based company with a site elsewhere in, in Europe, what, what is it that these companies like about you? Because there's obviously something that attracts these businesses to you rather than, I suppose, thinking the obvious way around is what are you, you know, what is it that, you know, that draws you to the culture? Presumably, there is something about you that seems to fit quite well with the expectations. Uh, you know, and being from Indian origin, I, I suppose I can speak from you know some sense of um, perspective of, you know, it can be a very demanding culture, but actually very frank and open and direct culture. 
quite frustrating at times. <laughs> um, and so, what you know is, do they see you as a very reliable figure that can get things done, or is there something else about you that that attracts you to these people? Yeah, so it's uh, an interesting question. I've, I've actually not phrased it to myself like that. Of, uh, usually the other way around, but happy to answer because. I think fundamentally what needs to happen for things to work is there needs to be personal chemistry and connect. One thing I learned in India is doing business in India from a phone call or an email is unlikely to yield the the results you want. So your personal presence and commitment, and that is not just for me, but also a broader message to customers that want to consider doing business in India. If you get them to personally commit to you, rather than uh, than some company abstract name, you get a lot more energy and passion and response out of it. And the other thing that needs to happen um, almost naturally is uh, I genuinely enjoy being in India. I enjoy the food. I'm very uh, open-minded about all kinds of food. There is spectacular vegetarian food, non-vegetarian food. Uh, it's very different. They're very proud of it. Um, so... So if you don't like it um, and and you don't get along on an important cultural aspect in India, it's it's difficult uh, difficult to work. However, I have also not spared my colleagues, and if you would interview some of them, they would also say, "Well, uh, he can be a bit rough, fine line for you." I am hired to open the doors for business in India globally, and that means that you cannot use an Indian term as sugarcoat the message. So I don't sugarcoat the message. Uh, that is, I guess, a Dutch cultural trait. If you live below sea level, there's no time for nicety. Someone has to put the finger in the dike to stop uh, the flooding. And if you apply that in a business setting and you make it clear to your colleagues that this feedback is based on the task and the profession and not on the person, and this is where cultural differences kick in, uh, you can give me any professional feedback, I will not take it personal. In India, uh, the general trend is to take it personal, and I always try to separate the two. It also means that during my years as a, as a leader, you have had to deal with some personalities that simply couldn't cope, and they then don't belong in a global CDMO organization. So it, it is not just about being uh, nice and accommodating and uh, finding harmony. Uh, it is not for everybody. Uh, but unless you are willing to uh, accept the message from your customers, feedback from your customers, and address how you, it got to this point and what needs to happen, you won't solve it. So sugarcoating doesn't help India is kind of the message. What companies have seen uh, in those years, because my stints were rarely very short, they were uh, they were quite long, is you need to deliver them results. So if there's no results and you have these stories, then uh, your credibility goes down the drain. But if they see that your approach actually leads to results and, and business is growing and customers are coming in, then you kind of win them over and you become one of the handful of, of Westerners that are still around in any companies that have understood how to do things and how to get things done, how to get the maximum out of the continent. Because the potential in India is absolutely spectacular and it is only getting better, I would say. Not at least because of the current geopolitical environment, but the sheer number of smart people, if they would be able to adopt a few common principles that are applied in uh, in more structured countries like perhaps Germany, Switzerland, so they would clearly have the ability to dominate. Quality of my colleagues in India is so darn good that if we have problems, I call India and then we often find a, a good solution. That's great. And I'm sure our listeners are jotting down notes of how to 
navigate uh, doing business in India, which is very generous of you to share your experience. And you mentioned a couple of things in the conversation today. Firstly, one a few moments ago around you know eighty to ninety percent of execution, you know, with CDMOs, execution is the most important piece. And actually, you know, particularly with Indian-based companies, just delivering results and executing well is is important. One of the things I've seen in, in my time in the sector in the last twenty years or so is business models where you have, say, a US or a European presence combined with an Indian presence and. I've seen it go horribly wrong as well, where, you know, the promise has been, we have a site in India and, you know, we tech transfer internally. And you said a phrase right at the start, actually, the call where it's almost thrown over the fence. So I suppose, and this might lead us nicely on to your current role, but I suppose before we get onto your current role, what have you learned about, you know, navigating that, I suppose, in my mind, it's probably... You know, if I was a buyer looking to use a business that had a, an Indian-based site, that it was, you know, the plan was to say tech transfer to scale up. I'd be a bit wary of it just because, you know, people can have their fingers burnt, burnt if communication's not very good, if the capability setup is not seamless, and I'm sure there's many reasons. So what have you learned about, I suppose, making sure that's executed correctly when you're kind of navigating a multi-site project that involves, say, an Indian site as well? Yeah, so... The key to tech transfer is to identify all the key stakeholders and functions and skill sets you require to actually achieve that. Second is to make sure there are no silos between manufacturing engineering and uh, R&D. And this is not just unique to India. So uh, I want to pull this more globally because I've had similar conversations with big pharma companies in the top 10 who faced similar problems between R&D and manufacturing, where R&D is often organic chemistry in small scale, cup or, or a glass, and manufacturing is in one to 10,000 liter vessels where physical phenomena of chemistry play a role equally important as the organic chemistry itself. So a process is not organic chemistry. A process is a marriage of chemical engineering and organic chemistry. And then to make it happen, you need supply chain added on top of it. And if you organize the key functions and you uh, scrutinize your your process, it is possible to scale up first-time chemistry or even novel chemistry with a high degree of success. And yes, you'll have learnings. And the key is those learnings should be new process know-how or critical process parameters. And here I will say uh, the ICH uh, Q11 guidelines are, are quite helpful because the structured approach of process development and not trial and error uh, chemistry, but but true process development with specific goals in mind, that helps. And if you then bring the R&D team to the site where they have to scale up as a single team and you celebrate success as a single team and you don't give any department the excuse that, hey, I did my job, but it was department XYZ that failed because frankly, the customer doesn't care which department failed, the delivery failed. So I think that is what you need to make clear. And that requires uh, quite blunt communication, which I think by now is clear. That is the style I uh, deliberately adopt <laughs> uh, because it, it gets the, the job done in, in a way. And again, to use the phrase sugarcoating, that does not work. Uh, and, and again, it doesn't just apply in India. It applies uh, between US and, and certain European countries. I've seen it go wrong. And sometimes you need to call out 
company cultures or country cultures and say, hey, this is why things are happening and you have a certain expectation. And if you give feedback in a very packaged and polite fashion, someone who's not a native speaker won't pick up on the nuance and go back and say, oh, the job was pretty good. Uh, whereas it was the intent was to say, well, this was a very bad job. You need to up, up your game. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I think you've made a great observation. Thank you for sharing, I suppose, the, the wider picture, as you said, Marcel, is, you know, it's not just an India thing. It's a global problem when you're, when you're navigating different countries. And if I understood correctly, it's almost having those uh, critical parameters that you said, which I think is a great phrase to, you know, irrespective of the countries. You have a, a process that is solid and, and works really well, which I think is great advice. And that brings us nicely on to your latest role. And is it your, and I was trying to work this out, I think, is this your first kind of CEO role specifically? Officially, yes. Um, my previous job as president of Jubilant Biosys was kind of similar. I reported to the board and um, uh, it had its own PL. So, but just it was a stock listed company in India. So you could call it more or less the, the second one, but officially the first one, yes. Okay. It was just a, an observation around, you know, how the, the first role has come on. But, but before we do that, tell us more about the business. And I believe it was, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but I know it was the kind of, the business was slightly carved out of another business or was separated from another business, if I've understood correctly. But if you want to give us the story. The main shareholder, uh, Deck and Fine Chemicals, essentially took over the remaining uh, ownership and is now the de facto uh, fully, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Deccan Fine Chemicals, which is not a known company, but a very large fine chemical CDMO to the uh, to the chemical industry. Interesting. And what was it, and effectively they created this new, or not new entity, but a new brand effectively yeah. out of the site. And that site was a, a former Novartis API plant from yes. my understanding. So they, they already own this site or did they buy this site specific for the business? No, so they had uh, been offered this opportunity and they had uh, signed the deal. And I was asked to join afterwards to help define the business strategy, how to picture this and how to implement it, how to market it, uh, but also how to create a face with India and integrate with India because the business model is very much um, a hybrid model where we want to use this facility to start up a series of complex registered starting materials, phosphoramidites, as well as uh, other um, starting materials. And second, use supply chain out of India to cater to the current demand in the pharma industry for a second de-risk supply chain. And that I think feeds well into my past experience uh, in India. And now, of course, a novel opportunity is to revive a core infrastructure here that has been here around for a few decades, just outside of Basel, surrounded by all these big companies that we mentioned earlier. But the, started up with a, with a new assignment, a new strategy. So we're, we're definitely upgrading from where the previous owner left off. We're modernizing and we're adding uh, R&D capabilities. We're adding pilot plans to facilitate tech transfer, troubleshooting, uh, supply of, of novel, uh, for us, novel ingredients to new modalities in the pharmaceutical sector, particularly the oligonucleotides and uh, in the second phase, also the peptide industry. Fascinating stuff. What was it about this opportunity for you that excited you? Was it the growth potential? Was it that integration piece with India? 
I suppose, was it the opportunity to really utilize the location where you're based in all these fantastic companies? I'm sure it's a combination of all of them. Correct. And remember, the decision I took was at a time when most of the world was still in lockdown and I couldn't go anywhere. So this was an opportunity 15 minutes from my home. Hometown Basel is to uh, to come to uh, office and the facility um, uh, help start it up. And then when India opened up, we uh, we started traveling uh, back, but uh, somewhat lower frequency than before because we now learn that uh, uh, digital communication tools can can compensate quite a bit. So it was the excitement of starting something novel, creating uh, not just bring business to India, but uh, both uh, restart business in Switzerland. Um, meeting a, a market demand. Um, so we're not doing anything against the, the grain or the current, um, but very much use the potential that India can offer in combination with the site here in Switzerland. And I say that the amount of response I've seen in the past uh, 12, 15 months has been absolutely phenomenal and, and encouraging. Um, and it has solidified the belief that the path we chalked out is uh, is a very promising one. Um we have started up our, our new pilot plant uh, just a few months ago and in the process of tech transferring. So we're going through all the, the learnings that I shared earlier and uh, some are working, some there's new learnings, uh, but uh, slowly but surely we, we'll get there and then this plant will start up by the end of this year mm-hmm. uh, just to make commercial scale co- complex starting materials for the oligonucleotide industry as a first, first model. And that is super exciting to see uh, a building where essentially uh, the, the previous owner had shut down the light and manufacturing, all the infrastructure was there in very good condition. They maintained it uh, exceptionally well. So we are grateful um, and, and we're being given an opportunity to revive a capacity that is uh, really in high demand uh, we find in both Europe and the US. And you mentioned oligonucleotides, which we've, we've had a few guests on in the last six months or so that have mentioned this. So talk to us about uh, oligos generally and what, why this is an exciting part of the industry because it strikes me as being an area that's usually in demand. I mean, if when I chat to anyone in the investment bank community or private equity community, it's an area they've got their eye on. And you know, for, for someone like myself who it's not an area that I've come across, you know, in, in huge, in a kind of day-to-day or anything like that. But nevertheless, I understand the the potential to treat uh, lots of diseases. But give us a little bit, you know, for anyone like myself that doesn't have a huge amount of background, and give us a bit of an overview. Yeah, no, I've, I've gone through a rapid learning curve myself in the past 18 months. And this was an, a modality that has been around for the past 15, 20 years. However, it was kind of relegated to orphan drugs and niche applications where uh, this short RNA, and oligo is a short RNA. I think that is probably more familiar for everybody since uh, since we most of us got COVID vaccines from mRNA technology, although you cannot re- truly not compare the, the technology as such, but it is a short RNA. Um, and, it adre- and it addresses a disease mechanism that cannot be done with existing small molecules. So it is truly a new tool in the uh, healthcare toolbox that is now able to address unmet need in larger patient populations. And the reason for that is not only the oligo innovation, which you can design based on uh, genetic science. Uh, you, you find the right uh, gene, you, you can either correct it, you can shut down the gene, you can upregulate it. And you go back to truly a, a more of a root cause of certain diseases rather than symptoms which a lot of the small molecule medicines uh, up to now have done. 
And I think that's the exciting part. And the, the true invention, Oligo 2.0, if you will, is the delivery mechanism of oligos to specific cell types in the body. Uh, and I think we, we owe Al Nylum that who invented Galnac that takes this molecule to the liver. Uh, and there's a whole host of research with lots of smart companies uh, in the fields that is trying to bring oligos to all sorts of other organs and specific cells by finding that unique binding and what ligand would bring an oligo to the cell and to deliver it. So, so that's a bit of the medical science, if you will. Uh, hopefully not too technical. I'm not a pharmacist myself. Now, what they have in common is they need uh, modified RNA and DNA building blocks, which are the phosphoramidides. And actually, they were mostly produced in Asia. And it's basic chemistry. It's, there's a lot of steps involved, and it's very labor-intense. And while there are some players in the West, they, they usually don't do more than one or two final steps, and they have to source the nucleosides from, from Asia. And, and our strategy is to make those nucleosides in-house and then complete the phosphoramidite here in Switzerland and then deliver. It's a platform technology, so... Uh, the, the molecules we make can be applied to literally thousands, if not more, of different oligo sequences because they are a sequence of DNA and RNA monomers. And that is the exciting part is uh, that there is literally no limit to uh, diseases that you can uh, attack. And, and, and you see big companies announcing to completely focus their, their discovery on, uh, on oligonucleotides, for example. And they've... The companies that have innovated have huge license deals, large number of license deals. So it's getting more popular. And I think the the first drug that came to market uh, in a large commercial volume was literally last year, Glyceron, which Novartis acquired from the medicine company, which is an all-item spin-out. And before, it was probably not on the radar screen of, uh, of a lot of people, including yourself, because it was simply under a niche application. And now it's becoming mainstream. And therefore, we see a significant change in the demand for these molecules, the supply chain becomes important, which it wasn't uh, earlier. Uh, so it's almost being at the right time, at the right product mix, uh, in the right location. That is uh, giving us an edge, if you will. And we could not do this without support from, from India, where I've got uh, literally a lot of resources that are working around the clock to develop uh, processes. Uh, we then tech transfer them using all the learnings we've, we've made in the past 20 years design facilities here and, and uh, mend this plant so that it is scalable and we can make this in, in bulk quantities. So this plant is, is planned to make metric ton quantities that in the past was, was kind of not, uh, not in demand. Thank you for, I suppose, sharing that because that gives me and I'm sure many of our listeners that kind of overview. And I love some of the language you used around it going from niche to mainstream and being a key tool in the healthcare box and just, you know, it's potential ability to address disease areas that can't uh, can't be accessed or can't be met by small molecule products. And it's a good segue, I suppose, into the ambition of the organization. So, you know, you, you obviously are CEO of the business now. What is the ambition of this site that you are on in particular, given the demand that you see in the market? So if the market continues to grow for oligos in the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years, does that mean the sky's the limit for your site here in Switzerland? And, you know, I know you've got about 25 people at the minute, but my assumption would be you are forecasting a significant growth uh, at your site. Yeah, correct. The growth is formidable and the ambition is, is nothing less than to become one of the largest producers in the world for this um, 
portfolio of products. And we do that based on uh, a large degree of backward integration. Again, in our very large infrastructure we have access to in India with our parent company. So that is the ambition. Second, uh, it was a GMP active ingredient site. So we will restart GMP and make this uh, a GMP hub that includes making these phosphoramidides to GMP standards or very close to GMP standards. Uh, they're, they're very complex. They're equally complex or more complex than some of the uh, old small molecules that are on the market for the past 10, 20 years. And then we, we will use the entire available capacity over the next five to eight years. So we restart in phases. Uh, so we're not we're not starting up 100% of the capacity here. That is uh, simply not affordable nor nor required. So we'll do it in three phases. And the first phase is proof of concept and launch this product line. And the moment we see the growth pick up, uh, we can quickly access another 25, uh, 30% of the capacity uh, within a 12-month time frame. And then the remaining part can be done in a similar time frame. Uh, and then we have 250 cubic meters, 80 reactors uh, up and running for a mix of complex starting materials, uh, GMP intermediates, and uh, here the odd active ingredient as well in the next couple of years. Very exciting times and no surprise to me why you decided to take on this role because um, I can see the the huge growth potential in, in an exciting part of the market, which I, I suppose leads us to the final question as we kind of run to the back end of the interview. I know you're, you're upset, Marcel, because we've had, it's gone very, very quickly and uh, you can talk to me all day and uh, we enjoy each other's company. That's not bore uh, the, the, the listeners, right? No, 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 no. Another five minutes of uh, attention span and then everyone everyone will start nodding off, I'm sure. Definitely not. It's been a really interesting conversation. And I, I, I suppose what strikes me, and you mentioned earlier on, is just your your experience of dealing in Asia is quite substantial, more than most people in the sector. And a previous guest that we recently had on uh, mentioned something similar to yourself, uh, Barbara Morgan, who works you know across the world in a global role, but talked about, you know, having to focus on Asia because it represents half of the world's population now as well, which is you know quite quite staggering. So talk to us about the future of Asia. And obviously I appreciate you have a slightly more uh, bias towards India in, in, in this, but you know, I know you've also run global roles, but as we look at the emergence, and that doesn't probably seem like the right word anymore, the, the kind of real powerhouse that is Asia now, how do you look I suppose, in the future of how Asia will impact the CRO and CDMO space. Uh, do you see it to start growing and, and dominating a little bit more versus its European uh, and US counterpart? Or do you see more of this hybrid setup, which is obviously in line with your, your model? Yeah, I tend to favor the hybrid model and the reason for that is not self-serving because i sit here uh, building a hybrid model it is what i truly believe is beneficial to the supply chain of the global pharma industry because it is incredibly complex there's uh, if you imagine there's there's over three and a half four thousand active ingredients um multiply that by two three four you have the number of formulation types and um, so very few regions or geographies individually can provide their population with that broad amount of medicines uh, without working globally. And so and this is, of course, the risk uh, in, in the past 20, 
five years, uh, a lot of countries, in particularly uh, developed economies, have nicely outsourced and uh, reduced their uh, core manufacturing to Asia. Uh, and now they want to bring it back overnight, which of course is not going to work because it's, it's, it's an ecosystem that takes at least a decade to rebuild and, and skill sets to be trained and uh, environmental compliance to be taken into account. It has to be sustainable, if you will. That is a, a requirement now, a necessity that has, has, has become busy, urgent. So there is a lot to be said for smart integration, where some things you can do local, some things you work with the right geographies and not one or, or you need two to de-risk. I think we've seen not only a pandemic, but also geopolitical um, actions can cause tremendous shockwaves in supply chain. Uh, and supply chain is not an abstract concept. That means do, do pharmacies have medicines on the shelf and patients need them? Uh, so, and there's a lot of complaint in, in most of the, of the developed uh, world where uh, even today there are shortages of even the most basic uh, generic medicines. Uh, so this is certainly a topic that is sometimes approached a bit too simplistic, uh, not truly understanding how uh, in-depth a supply chain in pharma is and how many ingredients uh, uh, from different industries have to come together to be assembled into a medicine that is then analyzed and suitable under the right uh, GMP uh, practices to be those two patients. Um, and I think that if you have that understanding, then thinking about, well, uh, an individual region or continent can do everything by themselves. Uh, I think that is utopia in the short term, nor efficient. Uh, so finding a hybrid solution where you combine the best of both worlds. And here I would say India has an edge. And that's not me saying, I, I can quote a, a very compelling McKinsey report where the CEO of McKinsey, I believe, has even mentioned this is the century of India. If you look at his young patient, not patient population, but professional population. Um, it has the highest number of young people, extremely well-educated, um, and they're all brimming with opportunity to join uh, the, the global economy. Without another agenda, without uh, an agenda that is not conducive for collaboration, and I think that makes uh, that makes the country a very good place to work with, again, provided you're willing to put in the effort, you're willing to uh, understand how things work in India and then mitigate the things that uh, can cause misunderstandings. And then you can have successful relationship. And, th and there's plenty of pharma companies in the top 20 that have demonstrated that uh, because this is not new. Uh, companies have worked with India for the past 20 years and they have found those gems and they've had ups and downs and they've hit a roadblock here and there, but then solved it together. And if the intent is to solve it, I don't think there's anything that cannot be done in, in the country. This is what I see in my current role. We have an extremely supportive parent company um, and, and shareholder. And of course, they are they're critical and they want to see progress and results. But at the same time, they take the long-term view um, because you don't start up something overnight with all the uh, intricacies and the compliances and the, 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 the detail. I mean, CDMO business is very much, and the pharma business is very much a business about attention to detail. And once you get, uh, get through that, uh, I think... Delivering a hybrid model also offers an, a level of affordability that is otherwise difficult to provide. And so I think, and that is what societies have to realize is that uh, you can want something, but then you have to pay attention to the consequence. Um, and if you want to manage your healthcare costs, which are uh, going through the roof in, in most aging economies, um, you, need to, you need to step up your game and be, be practical about how you're going to address that.
Well, I think that kind of final point around affordability and efficiency in helping, I suppose, bring together global supply chains and have a hybrid kind of solution and way of thinking about bringing drugs to market is a terrific and upbeat uh, way to end today's interview. Marcel, I was really excited to have this conversation with you and I'm glad that we've been able to bring your story to our listener, but also thank you for sharing many of the experiences and insights that you've had during your career that you've been kind enough to uh, articulate so well uh, with our listener today. I'm sure they've taken a huge amount of notes like I have, and they can take them back into their own organization as well. So good luck with your endeavor. And uh, no doubt I'll see you at an event very soon. And thank you for being a guest on Molecule to Market. Very good. Thank you very much for the opportunity, uh, Raman, and uh, good luck with the continuation of your podcast. Huh? Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.